Hello, Cults listeners. I'm Hannah Maguire. I'm Saruti Bala, and we're the hosts of the Spotify original from podcast, Sinister Societies. You may be familiar with our other podcast, Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast to bring you an unprecedented and unsettling look at some of the most outrageous groups in history. Think prophets, apocalypses and doom and sprinkle in some bunkers, booze and utopias for good measure. You can catch a new episode of Sinister Societies every Tuesday. But as an exclusive treat, here's our episode on the odd relationship between cult leader Charles Manson and a rock icon from the Beach Boys. Cults will return next week with a very special holiday episode, but in the meantime, enjoy. The year 1968 has been called one of the most turbulent in modern American history. And I'll give you a few examples. There were rising tensions over the war in Vietnam. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy were assassinated. And on top of that, there was civil unrest in the nation's capital. It's also the same year a notorious and dangerous cult leader made friends with a member of one of the most influential pop bands of the era. We're talking about the bizarre friendship between Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys and Charles Manson and how it led to Manson's brief flirtation with Hollywood. Hi everyone, and welcome to Sinister Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Saruti Bala. And I'm Hannah Maguire, allegedly. And every week, we are going to cover your favourite cults, faith followers and secret societies. We'll look at some of the biggest secretive societies and cults in history. And how they've managed to run in plain sight and infiltrate your everyday life. And yes, today we are going to talk about the strange friendship between Charles Manson and Beach Boys drummer Dennis Wilson, who was known as the wild one in the band. We'll look into how that relationship got Manson one step closer to the stardom he craved. And all this took place just a year before the horrific Manson family killing spree. I had no clue that the Beach Boys were involved. Oh, I, mean, I don't want to label all of them as being involved, but any of the Beach Every Boys. Every single Beach Boy. <laughs> was in any way connected to, affiliated with, friends with, acquaintances with Charles Manson. See, I did. Did you? Yes, yeah, because... Top knowledge. Um, well, I'm classically trained. So, fear no more if you only kind of know about Charles Manson like Saru, because we are going to fill you in with everything you could possibly want to know and some stuff that you probably don't. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... 
what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. So, Charles Manson, where to start? There is so much information out there and his so-called family that we could probably do a year's worth of episodes. But today, we're going to focus on Manson's dream of becoming the next Bob Dylan. He really, really believed that he had the musical chops to go up against the greats of the era. And although we probably shouldn't laugh at this because he did actually get quite close to achieving his dream, thanks to Beach Boy Dennis Wilson. How familiar are you with the discography of the Beach Boys? (laughs) You'll all be incredibly shocked to know, not at all. (laughs) Can you name one? Uh, I feel like I should be able to name one. You definitely can do one. Pass. 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 Sorry. Nil point. I know. Tell me. What's Uh, the most obvious? Good vibration. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wouldn't have got that. (laughs) I wouldn't have got that. um, Surfing in the USA. Oh, okay. Okay. Is it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think like, but most of them are like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we were older and then we wouldn't have to wait so long? That's the Beach Boys. Nope. Nope. Okie (laughs) dokie. Nope. I don't know. Is it because most people, like their parents play at home, so you kind of hear it and then you sort of, my my parents definitely weren't listening to the Beach Boys. I just never learned that way. My cultural learning, musical learning was just heavily stunted. I think possibly because of that. That's what I'm going to blame. Sure. We'll run with that one. That's fine. I think that what you need to know about the Beach Boys and why this is such an interesting story is that the Beach Boys are probably as wholesome as it gets. It's like tight harmonies. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could just get married now? Oh. Um, Yeah, it's not rock and roll. It's like, let's hold hands. Oh, okay. 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 I didn't know that. So we're all learning together now. (laughs) Great. So before we press on to Manson's musical past and his dream of becoming a star, let's do a very quick refresher of his early life. In a nutshell, he was born on November the 12th, 1934. So that makes him... A Scorpio, like our very own economics masters, Surujibala. Scorpio here. Scorpio face over there. <laughs> so, Charlie Manson was born, and then, as is the way of the world, he aged. And then, when he was five years old... We're really getting back to basics yeah, on really, these episodes. It's, it's been a time. Uh, his mum was sent to prison for armed robbery, and Manson was sent to live with his aunt and uncle. Did you know that Charlie Manson claimed that his mum tried to sell him for a pitcher of beer. I did know that. No one knows if it's true. I was going to say, because I feel like I've heard that it was successful and that she actually does it and then she goes and like tries to find him afterwards. But who's buying babies for beer? I mean, who's believing a word Charles Manson says? This is also true. So when he lives with his aunt and his uncle, he occasionally attended church with his grandma. And it's been said that when it came time to sing the hymns, he would be, quote, Outstanding. I have had the misfortune of listening to some of Manson's recordings. Oh, dear. It's dog shit. Oh, yeah. Truly. He is like that awful, awful person 
in a hostel oh, with a guitar. Oh my God, yes, yes. With the sob story about being sold for beer as a baby. Yeah, and the lyrics make no sense and he just sort of like drones. It's because he's off his head. He was off his head less than everyone else, which we will come on to. And it was around this age that Manson recruited kids at school to beat up other kids for him. He also had a fascination with guns and knives. And for most of his youth, he was in and out of schools and centers for delinquent children. Uh, So yeah, he's given off a lot of red flags immediately. Yeah, I mean, he's quite quickly ticking off the psychopath list. Very negatively precocious, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think we could say. And I just think there's something so gross about being that young and then realizing that it's much easier to just get other people to do your dirty work for you. He learns quickly. And by 1960, and only in his mid-twenties at this point, Manson got sentenced to prison for the second time. This time, he was charged with forging checks and for taking women across state lines for prostitution. While incarcerated, Manson took guitar lessons from a fellow prisoner, and he would spend hours in his cell composing songs and dreaming of a life of fame. A little old British band that uh, you may have heard of called The Beatles hit the music charts while Manson was locked up. Suruti Bala, can you name a song by The Beatles? Yellow Submarine. Well done. Can you name a song written by John Lennon? Did he write Imagine? Yes, well done. (laughs) (laughs) I only heard Imagine for the first time during the COVID pandemic when all of the celebrities thought that it would be really life-affirming for us normos to hear them sit around in their mansions singing Imagine. I was horrified. I couldn't believe what I was seeing and what I was hearing. It was diabolical. I mean, it was tone deaf in every sense of the word. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) It really, really was. It's just this like, oh, we're all in the same boat. Like, no, you're in a mansion in the Hollywood Hills and I'm in a paddling pool with a hole in it. Like, it was completely inexcusable. And I'm sorry that that's the way you discovered that song. Because I felt like if they'd sung something else, then you could have just been like, look, shut up, no one cares. But the lyrics of that song, I was like, are you for real? Mm. Stop this right now. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine we're all just stuck in a pandemic forever. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yes, that was my introduction to the song Imagine. And if the pandemic hadn't happened, I wouldn't have been able to answer this question. Well, don't worry about it because John Lennon was a piece of shit. So, um, never mind. Don't don't worry about it. Saru may not be a fan of Beatles and I am not a fan of John Lennon, but Charles Manson was a big old fan. He heard the music when he was in prison and he was hooked immediately. He was particularly drawn to the magnetic effect that the Beatles were seemingly having on the world. Interesting. Because, okay, right, I'll be honest. Like, I obviously know who the Beatles are, but I wouldn't say, again, I just feel like there's a gap in my music education where I didn't really hear it growing up. But I've obviously seen the video footage Mm -hmm. and stuff of women just, like, literally fainting at live shows and throwing their pants at the stage and all of this. And Americans, I mean, underwear, not their trousers. But, like, that's really interesting that to Charles Manson would be cult leader at this point, watching that and thinking, shit, yeah, that's what I want. And so he's like, okay, let me become a musician because I just want adoring fans. Yeah. And when he can't, he becomes a fucking cult leader and he gets the same thing. It's as good as. It's as good as. Failed musician, cult leader. Oh, makes so much sense. In 1967, at the age of 32, Manson was paroled from prison. Not long after his release, he formed a group of followers, most of whom were broken young adults. They would soon become known as the family. And supposedly, 
Manson only let the family listen to the Beatles and, of course, the songs that he had written himself. Is that better or worse than the cults that don't allow you to listen to anything? Worse. (laughs) By far. And speaking of the Beatles and Manson's love for them, it's widely known that the song Helter Skelter from the White Album actually inspired some of Charles Manson's white supremacist thoughts. I haven't heard Helter Skelter. I presume it's not about white supremacy. No, it's definitely not. Okay, good. Phew. (laughs) But he took it in that direction. But like literally, God knows how. Like I'm going to Google the lyrics and read them to you. Okay, well, I'll continue to tell you all about what he believed and then let's listen to the lyrics dramatically read to us by Hannah. So basically Manson, like I said, he took the song Helter Skelter to um, form or to inspire his white supremacist thoughts. He apparently believed that the lyrics were telling him that there would be an apocalyptic race war and that black people would rise up against their white oppressors. And Hannah's gonna tell us. I'm I'm gonna give you my favorite stanza. (laughs) Well, do you, don't you want me to make you I'm coming down fast, but don't let me break you. Tell me, tell me, tell me your answer. You may be a lover, but you ain't no dancer. Mm-hmm. I know, exactly. But it's not very race war, is it? No. I thought it seemed a bit sexy at the start. Yeah, it's sexy. I mean, as sexy as Paul McCartney can get. All right, all right. Uh, was he not hot back in the day? Well, I asked my mum about this. And my mum was like, when I was at school, you liked the Beatles or you liked the Stones, and you couldn't do both. And she was a Stones girl. And to think, people constantly keep saying now, why are we suddenly so polarised? So, music wasn't the only lesson Manson learned in prison. He also studied the teachings of Scientology and read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is a self-help book that basically tells you how to win people over. I actually think it's much closer to a handbook of how to be an abominable piece of shit. Oh, really? I've never read it. So it's how to manipulate people. That's all it is. It's not quite the 48 Laws of Power, but it's basically similar ideas. It's just like, oh, you know, ask them for something that is impossible and then ask for the thing you really want because then that'll seem easier. It's exactly what it is, man. That's just too much hard work. I don't know. Donald Trump, big fan, so it can't be that much of hard work because... Could leave that one. I guess if you're not thinking about literally anything else, then you've got the capacity for it. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like I haven't got the brain capacity to read a book on how to manipulate people. Oh, certainly not right now. I'm far too busy and important. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, basically what we've learned here, I feel like, is that Charles Manson is the pinnacle of Hollywood desire. That's what I think of now when I think of Charles Manson. Coming up, we'll get into how Manson's friendship with a beach boy got him one step closer to his dream of becoming a star. So let's get into how Charles Manson and his family got to shack up with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. We're going to set the scene for you, as we mentioned earlier on. It was the summer of 68. Free love was flowing. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys was cruising along Sunset Boulevard in LA when he spotted two women hitchhiking. He picked them up and took them back to his place for, quote, milk and cookies. Wait, who picked up who? Dennis picked up the Manson family. Okay. Yeah. 
good. So maybe it was meant to be. Well, I mean, also, it's the reverse of what everyone worries about hitchhiking. They always worry that the driver's going to murder the passenger, but actually... Plot twist. Plot twist. You've picked up Charles Manson. It's like that tweet that's like, what are the statistics of there being two serial killers in this car? (laughs) (laughs) So that night, the women told Dennis Wilson all about their, quote, spiritual guru, Charles Manson. They said that he was also a musician. And according to reports, which there have been a lot of, after hearing the women wax lyrical about Manson, Wilson decided he wanted to meet the man. Which is, I mean, it's the power of face-to-face marketing. And it also worked the other way around because the women, again, really making these connections, really doing great networking here, they went home and told Manson that they had been hanging out with the drummer of a band called The Beach Boys. And when Manson heard this, he insisted on being introduced to Wilson. I think because he already realized what an opportunity this could be for his quote-unquote music career. So according to Diane Lake, one of Mance's followers, who was not involved in any of the murders, she said that Wilson and Manson had an immediate connection. You would hate that, wouldn't you? If people were just running around after all this happened and being like, oh, they had such a connection. I'd be like, stop saying yeah, that. don't embarrass me. <laughs> Lake wrote in her memoir... Dennis and Charlie hit it off right away, which is not surprising, given Charlie's skills at ingratiating himself with others. Sinister. Only a few days after their first meeting, Manson and his followers moved into Wilson's home. And to give you an idea of what this house is like, and just how successful the Beach Boys were, this house had 31 rooms, zebra print carpet, and a swimming pool in the shape of California. Oh, well, point proved. Yeah, big deal, Dennis. (laughs) So the Manson family were known for dropping acid and having a lot of group sex. That's like their whole bag until they get into murder and the race war. And it's probably also safe to say that a lot of the group sex they were having was unprotected. And uh, this caused gonorrhea to spread quite rapidly among the crew living at Wilson's house. But it has to be mentioned that Wilson did pay for the family to get treated for the STD. Well, that's nice of him. I'll get rid of your clap for you. Thank you for bringing it to my house. I kind of feel like that makes sense. A bit of a guilty conscience, Wilson. Uh, Well, right. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) So, the dropping acid thing, Charles Manson would take way, way less or none. And he would let everyone else go wild. So he was the center of truth in the room. And he was the only one that wasn't like out of his mind. I hate that. Mm -hmm. I hate those people. And it's straight out of How to Gain Friends and Manipulate People or whatever it's called. Ah. Yeah. Is it like the people who like get way less drunk and then they watch you? Mm-hmm, that's exactly that. And then the next day at the office, they'll be like, oh, you kept talking about this. Or you're yeah. being kind of like, oh, shut up. Yeah, you had toilet paper stuck to your shoe and your skirt was in your pants. Mm, thanks. Etc. And in a 1968 interview with British pop magazine Rave, Dennis Wilson described Manson as a, quote, wizard. And, quote, a friend of mine who says he is God and the devil. Okay, I take it back. I take it back about what he was saying about this woman, Diane Lake, running around talking about how much they connected because he's doing it himself. Mm. Don't tell people you think he's a wizard. That makes you sound crazy. Yeah, I feel like somebody has been doing quite a lot of acid and had quite a lot of gonorrhea. (laughs) It's gone spread to his brain. Too much milk and cookies. Yes, far too much. Far too much indeed. But let's get back to Manson's music for just a second. When Wilson first heard Manson's songs that summer... He heard a lot of potential, apparently. God knows how, but he did end up introducing Manson to some big-time producers. 
Wilson told a British newspaper in 1968 that he'd recently met a guy called Charlie who had, quote, great musical ideas. Dennis, big deal, Dan, pack it in. Wilson even let Manson record some songs at the Beach Boys' actual own studio. But according to Manson's biographer, Jeff Gwynn, who also wrote The Road to Jonestown, which is also an excellent book, the other Beach Boys thought Manson was, quote, a talentless bum, and I am much more in line with the other Beach Boys, the other boys at the beach, not with Big Deal Dan. I mean, as somebody who knows very little about this group of people, I would say the one who hangs out with Charles Manson and thinks he's a wizard versus the others who think that Charles Manson is a talentless bum. I would also agree. Majority rule, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Wilson's cousin and bandmate, Mike Love, has made it clear in interviews that Dennis was the only beach boy who welcomed Manson. So you would think that after being in a band together for so long, you would have come up with some sort of democratic system, but apparently not. So when producers tried to help Manson with his music, he didn't take it well. Oh, what a surprise. The narcissistic psychopath Charles Manson doesn't like being told what to do. <laughs> and reportedly in one instance, he actually pulled a knife on them. I mean, the fact that these music producers were even willing to give him any time is shocking to me. Yes, but you have to remember that Phil Spector is a music producer. Music producers can be absolute animals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is true. So after the knife incident... Dennis Wilson started to distance himself from Manson at last. But not before he had introduced him to Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day, and also a big deal music producer. Can you name a song by Doris Day? That's okay, I don't think I can either. Escape that one. <laughs> but the Beach Boys did actually end up recording one of Manson's songs. Well, sort of. It was called Cease to Exist, which Manson ended up selling to the Beach Boys. They tweaked it by revising some of the lyrics and melodies. And they also changed the name to Never Learn Not To Love. Manson was furious when he found out, especially when he realised that he didn't get a songwriting credit. Which is shady, for sure. But people do it all the time. Reportedly, after he found out that he wasn't getting his songwriting credit and that they had nicked his song... Manson went up to Dennis Wilson, handed him a bullet and said to him, and this is a quote, I know where you live. I know where your children are. I would under I wouldn't understand. Wrong. That's <laughs> the wrong word. I would find it less odd if he'd gone up to the other Beach Boys that hate him mm. and be like, fuck you. But like Dennis is your bro. He was probably fighting your corner. He just got outvoted. That's true. But then I can also see it's like with narcissists you see that kind of like revenge tactic and they'll do it to the people that are actually the closest to them. And it's like more of a, I thought I had manipulated you successfully and you turned on me and now I'm pissed about Oh, that. right, yeah, no, that does make sense. So I kind of feel like he's like, well, you know, my games aren't working on you, but you, mm. I thought I had done this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so maybe that's why, but it is interesting. Also in retaliation, because it didn't end there just with uh, threats about murdering him and his children. Manson and his family stole some of Wilson's gold records, wrecked his car, and spent about $100,000 of his money. On what? And it should also be mentioned that the single was released eight months, just eight months, before the Manson family killings. So I think, you know, I know he threatened to kill you and your kids, and he wrecked your car and did all that and stole a bunch of money, but bloody hell, you'd feel like... Thank God I didn't get murdered mm. by Charles Manson and yeah. his 
crazy family. Yeah, yeah, close call. Wow. Up next, we will look at how Charles Manson's friendship with Dennis Wilson led to Manson hanging out with some very famous faces. So now let's get into how Charles Manson wormed his way into Hollywood A-list parties, where he met the likes of Sir Michael Caine, Neil Young, and the Mamas and the Papas. And speaking of Neil Young, fun fact, he also apparently had his very own jamming session with Charles Manson. And when asked about Charles Manson himself in an interview, Young said the following, I thought he really had something crazy, something great. He was like a living poet. These people, I don't know who Neil Young is. I know, everybody's screaming. What? I thought he was a living poet. It makes me wonder how close the line is between genius and talentless bomb. Because I'm amazed that Manson even managed a jamming session because his guitar is that bad. So I don't know why, like if you just push it far enough, it's like if you say enough stupid shit, someone somewhere is going to think you're a philosopher. Yeah, yeah. It's just interesting that the people who are doing this, because that, absolutely, if you just tweet enough weird stuff or start a YouTube channel or a podcast, lots of people can be like, oh, someone will find something in it. Mm-hmm. These people are talented, successful yes, people. Yes, certainly, yeah. So, I mean, you do see now where Manson got his confidence from. Yeah. If nothing else. So, as Dennis Wilson and Manson's relationship soured, Manson had to figure out another way to reach his goal of becoming a famous musician and having pants thrown at him. So he attempted to get the attention of Terry Melcher, who was a big deal music producer that we mentioned earlier. Melcher was producing for the Beach Boys and Birds at the time, and he was also dating Candice Bergen, who was a very famous model, and uh, she's known best for her role as the journalist Murphy Brown. And it's worth noting here that from 1966 until the January of 1969, Bergen and Melcher lived together at The House on Cielo Drive. And just in case you're not familiar with the Manson family murder spree, that is, of course, the same house where actress Sharon Tate, along with four other people, were murdered by Manson's followers in October 1969, just seven months after Terry Melcher moved out. I mean, just imagine. That's terrifying. So Melcher did give Manson an opportunity to show off his musical talents. But he didn't do a good enough job because Melcher refused to sign him. And like Dennis Wilson had done, Melcher also began to distance himself from Manson. Another surprising Hollywood connection Manson made was with the daughter of Miss Murder, she wrote herself, Angela Lansbury. Out of control. I know. Angela Lansbury's dad was like a huge big deal politician in Poplar, where I used to live in East London. Really? Mm-hmm. So there's like Lansbury Square. Like, it, oh. it was a huge deal. And like a lot of like workers' rights stuff. Oh, I did not know there that. There you go. I love Angela Lansbury. Me too. So, not Angela Lansbury, but Angela Lansbury's daughter got caught up with some of the Manson followers as well. And Angela Lansbury addressed this in a 2014 interview with the Daily Mail. And she said of her daughter, quote, she was one of many youngsters who knew him and they were fascinated. He was an extraordinary character, charismatic in many ways, no question about it. 
most cult leaders are. Exactly. And we mentioned a bit ago about how Sir Michael Caine also had a brief but memorable meeting with Manson, which he recalled in his memoir. Apparently, they met at a party held by Cass Elliot of the Mamas and the Papas. Sir Michael described Manson as, quote, a scruffy little man. Can you do it in Michael Caine's voice? I can hear it in my head. Can I do it? <laughs> scruffy little man. Yeah, you go. I'm Michael Caine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there you go. That's the most accurate of all the quotes we've heard so far. <laughs> yeah, scruffy little man and talentless bum. Mm-hmm. Scruffy yes. little talentless bum. Nailed it. And Manson's affair with Hollywood was brief because in 1971, he was once again sent to prison. This time, he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. Manson was sentenced for the murder of two people and for orchestrating the killings of seven others. Manson finally died in 2017 when he was 83 years old. According to Manson family member Susan Atkins, who I would argue is probably the most famous, and she was also in Anton LaVey's topless witch coven review at the Black House, Susan Atkins was also given a life sentence for her involvement in the murders. She's claimed that the Manson family had a so-called kill list, and you can't see my hands, but I am doing air quotes, the list named Hollywood heavyweights, from Elizabeth Taylor to Frank Sinatra, and even our very own Welshman, Sir Tom Jones. We don't really know why these people were on the list. It's quite an eclectic group of people. Just, I suppose it's like going for the most famous. Yeah, and, you know, probably we're trying to read far too much into the logic of uh, Charles Manson, apart from just let's go for the most famous people I can think of. But possibly also the kind of people that were fans of these different people cause the most uproar because they're a bit more like bringing the groups together in their rage. Yes, exactly. Because his whole aim is basically, just in case people don't know, how he's going to kickstart this race war that he calls Helter Skelter is to murder a bunch Mm -hmm. of famous white people and then make it look like black people had done it and then have the white people revolt and then the black people all fight back and we'll start the race war. Got it. That's the plan. So it's false flag. False flag operation. Perfect. That's it. In 1976, when Rolling Stone magazine asked Dennis Wilson about his friendship with Manson, he responded, as long as I live, I'll never talk about that. Uh, Don't say that. That sounds shady. Yeah. Say anything else. Yeah, yeah. Literally anything else. Say we were just acquaintances. I met him a couple of times. I don't really know. Even be like, I was on a lot of drugs back then. I don't really remember. I don't know. That would be better. Anything would. Yeah, absolutely. Just admitting to have taken so many drugs you don't even remember that period of your life would be better than saying as long as I live, I'll never talk about that. Mm-hmm. Bad news. And finally, back to Manson and his musical ambitions. He did actually release an album in 1970. It was recorded between 1967 and 68 by Phil Kaufman, who Manson had met in prison. That's exactly where you want to find your music producer. <laughs> and uh, Phil had actually, apart from you know his illustrious career of being in prison, um, had also been a one-time roadie for the Rolling Stones. A one-time roadie does not a music producer make. Well, apparently one-time roadie plus prison equals music producer. Well, then sign me up. (laughs) And uh, would you like to know what Manson's one and only album was called? Desperately. Lie, colon, The Love and Terror Cult. Well then. So, yeah, I think we've learned in today's episode that Manson really has earned his uh, Hollywood credentials, his Hollywood reputation, his Hollywood cult leader reputation. Earned yeah. or snatched? Snatched okay. from the jaws of Dennis Wilson. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've definitely learned that if you are weird enough 
famous people will think you're cool eventually. If you're weird enough and persistent enough yep. and have lots of access to drugs. Mm, and at least pretend that you can play guitar. Mm-hmm. And have convinced a bunch of women to do face-to-face marketing for you. Yeah. You can be anything you want to be. And that's it. So, yeah, basically do be anything you want to be, except don't be a cult leader, a killer, or try start any race wars because uh, that is all quite unhelpful and negative. And you don't want that kind of negative energy in your life. So go do something better. I don't know. Go be like a wholesome musician. Who knows? That's it, though. That's it for today's episode. I'm trying to think of who's the most wholesome musician. Are there any wholesome musicians? I feel like Jack Johnson's pretty wholesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you ever so much for listening. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Sinister Societies on Spotify to get a brand new episode every single week. You can listen to this and all other episodes of Sinister Societies for free exclusively on Spotify. And if you like this show, also be sure to follow at Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Podcast Network on Twitter. And if that still is not enough for you, you can come and visit us at Red Handed HQ wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we've been covering a whole bunch of really cool stuff recently. One of my top favorites, there's a two-parter on Shemima Begum, who left the UK, Bethnal Green, East London, to join ISIS. And now she wants to come back and everyone is saying no thank you. I mean, yes. And in that episode, we do a big deep dive into the death cult that is ISIS. So Red Handed is a weekly true crime podcast where we cover all sorts of things, not just cults. Recently, we did a big deep dive into Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, as we briefly mentioned in this episode. So if that sounds like it's your fit, your kind of show, then head on over to Red Handed wherever you listen to your podcasts. Sinister Societies is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It's produced by Kristen Acevedo and Gemma Waters. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Research by Chelsea Wood and fact-checking by Cara McAleen. And we're your hosts, Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. Wasn't that something? Want to hear more? Just follow Sinister Societies for free on Spotify and catch a new episode every Tuesday.